1: The speakeasy. Uh, today we are so lucky to have Safedine Amous, a legendary Bitcoin expert and economist. Um, and you're the author, um, Safety, of the Bitcoin Standard, which is an incredibly well-received book that I think has been translated into something like 21 languages. Is that right?
0: It's up to about 30 now, although I've lost count.
1: Wow, wow! And and just tell um, our listeners and viewers what the what that book is about.
0: Um, that book was my attempt to try and uh, explain how Bitcoin works uh, from scratch. Basically, um, I was a university pres- professor at that time. I used to teach economics. And um, I was fascinated by Bitcoin. I had been studying it for a few years. And um, the world uh, back then, as it is now, um, is full of people who are just curious about this thing but can't get it because it seems pretty uh, obscure and complicated. Um, so I thought, um, you know, I, I had a... F- generally good skill of communicating economics ideas i taught economics at university level for 10 years and i was pretty good at it so i thought i'll take a crack at writing a book on bitcoin And initially my idea was to write something brief um something like a you know 45 50 page um intro but as soon as i got started um i was typing uncontrollably and i could only stop after around a hundred thousand words oh my I got god oh,
1: yeah <laughs> Well, it was obviously a big success to be translated into so many languages. And um, we're particularly excited to have you in the speakeasy today because of what's happening in the Bitcoin world. And before um, I let James come in, um, I would love your take on the plunging value of Bitcoin and as we speak right now, here in the UK, the value in sterling is less than 17,000, which is you know well at less than half of, of the peak. Um, and a lot of commentary from the skeptics saying this proves everything we always said, you know, the whole thing, the Ponzi scheme. I would love to hear how you respond to that.
0: Um I think you know the first thing is um uh, the reason bitcoin's price crashed is the same reason that it has crashed many many times before it crashes a big crash because before that it has an enormous and much bigger run up and so the uh, you know the, the people who are cackling with glee at the idea that bitcoin has crashed are completely missing the most important point which is that even after its crash it still beats as a form of saving. and not just beats um, national currencies. You know, it's not just that you're up uh, in dollar terms. It also beat all, beats all your other alternatives for saving for the future. And so this is the thing that they keep missing. And of course, the thing about these, um, you know, the skeptics, they're very, very good at uh, coming up when um, the price sh- crashes and using it as vindication. Some of them have been doing this, you know, even as the price has gone a thousand fold upwards. So uh, Nouriel Rubini is one particular particularly deranged, uh, old, uh, hysterical man, who was celebrating the fall of Bitcoin to $58 and using that as evidence that it's crashed and that it is dead. Back in, I think, 2012, he was the first time that he tweeted about it. So if it fails when it drops to $58, the corollary must be that it succeeds at some point, at some number larger than 58 Yes. As long as he doesn't name that number, as long as he doesn't say, you know, at this number, I will admit that I was wrong, whereas if it drops to a certain number, I will be correct, then he can't be taken seriously. He's just another um, fiat central bank uh, paid apologist. Um, essentially, uh, essentially, taking um, – central bankers were paid by fiat central banks. I'm sorry, economists are paid by fiat central banks. Listening to them is a little bit like um, believing – Um, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, when he does the shampoo ad and says that this is uh, why my hair is great, they're paid (laughs) to promote a product. And if you believe them and take them intellectually, um, you know, you're like a teenager who really thinks Cristiano Ronaldo studied the chemistry of the shampoo and concluded that this is the best shampoo. He's not, he's just paid to do it.
2: Um, In my myth, I thought Cristiano Ronaldo did do that. So now I learned something. (laughs) But (laughs) I think interesting debate that we're having through the podcast about this to sort of unearth some findings on this and also educate ourselves and also listeners on this. I want to move forward before I want to move back, because just in sort of background knowledge and news, you've got a great story in terms of the history of various aspects of Goldstone. We'll come on to that in a minute. But in terms of the future of Bitcoin, where do you see this going? I know there's a naysayers at the moment who are saying that the markets, you know, this, it's had it, it's over, but they're not doing their due diligence and homework. Where do you see Bitcoin going over, say, the next five to 10 years.
0: I think ultimately, uh, my prediction for what Bitcoin is going to do comes from the fact that I um, analyze in my book. The central premise of the book is that Bitcoin is the hardest money ever invented. And that's really the key and most interesting idea here. This is why this technology is so fascinating, because all of human history, humanity is moving toward harder and harder money. And that happens through either conscious decision or also just through market dynamics. So if we live in a society in which everybody picks their form of money randomly and everybody chooses to use you know, whatever they fancy, somebody uses gold, someone uses copper, someone uses fish. Um, Even if we had that kind of uh, no thought going into the selection of money, after a couple of centuries, the money will end up being the things that are monetary most that have the monetary properties required. People who store their wealth in things like copper and fish are going to witness all their wealth disappear and the only wealth that remains is going to be in gold and so then the dominant store of value and the dominant cash balances will be in gold the hardest money and then um, that becomes the dominant money so history uh, and that's basically the focus of the first seven chapters of my book history has always been this story you know you 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 wherever you look people are always using the hardest thing to make as money so in prison, they're using cigarettes. In islands that don't have limestone, they use limestone because it's very expensive to get it from faraway islands. In places uh, where uh, where they didn't have gold, they used rare seashells as money. But then when gold comes in, it displaces all of these monies. And we see the same dynamic with government monies. Um, if your government currency is increasing at a very fast supply growth rate, it loses value nobody holds it and people switch to the dollar and the euro and the yen so we see this dynamic of the hard money always driving out the easy money and with bitcoin we have the hardest money ever currently its supply only grows at around 1.8 percent per year and that rate drops every four years so in two years time bitcoin is going to be growing at less than one percent and then four years later it'll be at less than half percent and so the supply continues to grow at a decreasing rate whereas the network continues to be reliable and continues to be able to scale essentially infinitely because, you know, this is digital. So there's no physical limit to how much economic value you can put into it. And so the way that Bitcoin scales is that more demand comes in. There's no way for demand for the supply to increase in order to meet the increased demand and so the only way to meet the increased demand is for the price to rise and that's what gives us these massive run-ups which you know lead to frenzies where uh, people start getting attracted into getting into bitcoin with um, short-term perspective you know i'm going to borrow money for three months and buy bitcoin and then sell it at the end of the three months when we get into that speculative mania we get a lot of buying on leverage and that can be liquidated once you know one bit of bad news causes a small drop that causes a lot of people who are on leverage to get liquidated they have to sell their coins that causes a bigger drop so you know the 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 fundamentals is that um bitcoin is being spread out and being held by more and more people and being um demanded by more and more people and people's cash balances in bitcoin grow i think this fundamental trend will continue but as it continues it's going to be constantly having these bubbles up and down now the success, in my opinion, of Bitcoin, and, and again going back to the naysayers, they think of it as if it is some kind of um, intellectual. Um, uh, it's an intellectual contest that Bitcoin needs to win by convincing them and convincing fiat central banks that you know Bitcoin works, and therefore they're going to give it the green thumb. And they think this is uh, up to them. So you know they, they they have a very inflated sense of importance of um, how, what their opinion is going to do. But in reality, it doesn't matter if all of the world's economists oppose it anyway in the same way that you know all the world's physicists opposed the prospect of flight they said flight was impossible in the early 19th uh, in the early 20th century um, Edison Kelvin all of these important names in science they said it didn't work that can't stop an airplane from flying you know, that can't ban flight and so, if Bitcoin continues to work, if it continues to take off, if it continues to prove to be a better store of value for people in the long term than um, all the alternatives that their governments are giving them you know um, the cash that loses value, bonds that offer real negative rates those are your options for saving. Uh, Bitcoin beats those hands down on the long term if your If your time horizon is not about speculating over weeks if you 're not looking into you know uh, playing the market every day like a casino you can't beat bitcoin over 5 years and this is what i challenge um the, the, the you know the, the, all of these people that tell you bitcoin failed where here we are we're at the bottom of a bitcoin massive crash of more than 75% or something like that show us how you beat bitcoin in your own portfolio over the last 5 years you know this this is the point where you should be out there gloating and saying yeah if you put your money in bitcoin you lost here's what i would have done here's what i did here's how i beat bitcoin but none of those people will show you that you know um, talib or um rubini They're always so confident and so convinced about what you should be doing with your money, but they will never tell you (laughs) what they're doing with theirs and how it is better than Bitcoin.
1: Right. Um, And you, you talk a lot and you've written a lot about gold. And the argument that I hear most commonly from skeptics, from the naysayers is, Well, you know, it's always much safer just to stick with gold. You know, this is the time-honored store of value. It's the thing that's safe as forever. Why? How do you counter that argument?
0: The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeddean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, principles of economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots 12 hours apart to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Um, Well, first of all, I mean, I I was a gold bug myself. The reason I got into Bitcoin was because I was into gold. So I'm quite sympathetic to that argument. In fact, I think... Um, you only really understand Bitcoin after understanding gold. That's why my book, The Bitcoin Standard, talks more about gold than Bitcoin. I think, um, you know, the argument that I make is that the reason gold became money is not because it's yellow and shiny and pretty. It's because it's the one thing whose supply grows at the lowest rate. And there's a detailed explanation for why that happens. So there is a little bit of... um, a mystical element in the way that people discuss the uh, the monetary properties of gold as if uh, as if you know it, it it was God that put it there for us specifically to be yellow and shiny so that we and and you know the, the history of alchemists and so on there 's a lot of mysticism about it, and I must admit that you know uh, having been a gold bug i I was influenced by that, but then when you see bitcoin. It's almost uh, it's almost like moving past the superstitious phase and so trying to see you know um, you used to think that flight happens through uh, angels and then you see uh, you know only angels can fly but then you see and actually well you know airplanes can do it and with Bitcoin we see this kind of you know taking away this uh, magical idea and just um, distilling it down to its. Core essential economic properties. So, Bitcoin takes the most important economic property of gold, which is a low supply growth rate, and gets rid of all the physical properties. So, um, if what makes gold money is the yellowness and the shininess, then Bitcoin is clearly failed. But i believe what makes gold money is not that it's 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 the limited supply so in that sense bitcoin is better than gold because it has its supply growth rate decline so gold is always increasing at around one and a half percent to two percent per year in terms of its supply Um, bitcoin is going to eventually increase at a zero percent it's going to stop increasing so gold will always increase whereas bitcoin will remain the same although that difference is not very big but the real and most important difference and that's the topic of my second book, uh, the Fiat Standard, which was just released uh, last year. Is that um, with gold, you need, because it is physical. You know, people think of it; as, it's, it's an advantage. I can hold it in my hand. I can put it under my mattress. I can drop it and heal it, hear it make a sound. It's real. I can touch it. I mean, that sounds nice. Um, you know, if the point of money is that you touch it, but that's not the point of money. The point of money is to move it around and pay it and um the complicated thing the problem that gold faces is that this physical nature is the drawback that necessitates its centralization that's the reason why we went off the gold standard ultimately we have to if you want to use gold you know it it, it was perfectly possible for people to use gold personally you know you carry an actual coin and you pay with it and you could supplement with silver coins for your daily transactions In a time when people lived in small little towns and small little societies, and in a time in which global trade was very slow and um, very limited, and you could move gold around at the speed of goods. Um, By the 18th and 19th century, we start seeing, you know, with the development of modern transportation and the growth of international trade, goods are moving really quickly. And so gold needs to keep up with that movement and that becomes very expensive you know moving physical gold around is expensive and is unsafe and so the way to do that you know to allow you to trade with people in your neighborhood but also in the town next door and the country next door and the continent next door was to centralize the gold in your bank account you know you put your gold in the bank account and then your bank account will centralize its reserves part of its reserves in the central bank and as global central banks will deal with one another. That's the only way that you can scale gold effectively because of its physical nature. And that's the resulted in a century of of gold essentially being handicapped from its monetary role. So as a gold bug, you know, the the strategy is to just um, shake your fists impotently at government and demand. Please give us back the gold standard that you took away surreptitiously a century ago. And I discussed the story of how it was uh, uh, removed in the fiat standard. And uh, that strategy, I think, is <laughs> destined to fail because government, uh, I mean, you can't run uh, on a platform of defanging government by taking away its printing press simply because people who want to use the printing press will be able to buy votes whereas you cannot you know if you run on a platform of i'm going to give everybody pink unicorns and ponies and a beautiful uh, world and hospitals and roads and all of those things because i'm just going to reuse the money printer you're definitely going to beat the guy who's going to say nope no hospitals no roads build your own hospitals build your own roads um uh, get your own pink unicorns um i'm not printing money i'm just going to protect the currency that just doesn't win
2: We've got a weird situation where governments, especially in the UK, have said there's no magic money tree over the last decade, especially through austerity and so on. But the paradox of that is that's exactly what they've been doing through quantitative easing. Obviously, I think 500 billion has been printed effectively through that auspice through the pandemic, yeah. which the link there with with inflation because of obviously the devaluing. Things. I mean, what's your own feelings on that, especially with a rampant spike, not just in the UK, but in the US of quantitative easing in the last 12 years, but in particular through the pandemic?
0: Yeah, I mean, they've managed to successfully uh, manage the threat of inflation by uh, adopting this kind of very sensible bit of uh, economic thinking, which is, yeah, there is no magic money tree, but applying it to 99% of the population <laughs> and exempting the small yeah. 1% of the population. So There's no magic money tree if you want you know to uh, build schools or do all any, um, any of those things, which I believe is true. I, I don't think government should be in the business of building schools and hospitals because I think it's… Um, it's 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 not as efficient as building those things, and it doesn't get its resources for free. So I support that rhetoric, and I think it would be it it would make a lot of sense if we actually did have a government that said no magic money tree. But the magic money tree stops existing for your schools and hospitals, but it's always always available for J.P. Morgan and HSBC when they need to be bailed out from the fact that you know they took out hundreds of millions of dollars of um, bad debt and they can't pay them back, and so then the and then the government is always willing to um, bail them out. And um, the, the way that this works is that, you know, as long as you're concentrating the magic money tree benefits in a small little tiny percentage of the population, you don't get uh, as big an inflation spike, what you get is essentially the feudalism we're seeing today, where there's a class of people that don't need to work, um, they, they just turn up <laughs> to the bank, make mistakes, and get paid to make mistakes. And the bigger the mistake, the bigger the mess up, uh, the more they get bailed out. And then there's a growing number of, essentially the majority of people who are just witnessing their daily life become more and more expensive. What used to be attainable for a middle class person now has become almost uh, a fantasy you know every year houses go up five seven ten percent in cost cpi and inflation statistics tell you it's all inflation is only two three percent but you know compare the price i I think this is what i tell people if you really want to look about uh, if you want to measure the inflation rate that is most relevant to you don't look at cpi because that's taking a random basket of things, specifically designed to give a low number, look yeah. at the price of the house that you want to live in. You know, if you had a choice of buying the, whatever house you could, what is the house that you would want to live in? Look at the price of that house and see how much it has changed over the last 10 years and see if your income has caught up with that. Because if your income is increasing faster than that, then you're beating inflation and you're coming closer to living in this house but for the vast majority of people their incomes aren't keeping up with the inflation in the price of houses so and of course the cpi focuses on the industrial goods you know they, they put in the plastic cheap stuff that is imported from china that is mass produced that stuff is pretty easy to increase in quantity as a response to supply spikes so therefore you don't get a big increase in the price of it it's much more difficult Um, And and that's where you see the inflation is when things that are price sensitive, things that you can't just conjure out of thin air. So houses are one of those things. Energy, of course, is another very important thing. And real food, you know, as as opposed to industrial junk food. And so uh, in the fiat standard, I argue that the way that uh, governments have made the fiat monetary system workable is through extensively trying to convince their populations to eat uh, slave food, which is not very inflationary, you know, if you eat industrial uh, plastic food it doesn't go up in price as much as healthy food, and we see the result of that over the last 50 years, you know, it's no coincidence that the 1970s was the decade of inflation and also the decade of the beginning of the global obesity crisis, because it was at that time that governments started subsidizing all these industrial poisonous crops, telling people that they should eat grains instead of eating meat telling people that meat is harmful, you know the meat that all of your ancestors have eaten for millions of years, suddenly started causing heart disease in the 1970s exactly at the same time that government made meat unaffordable what a blessing for them that you know at that time science discovered that it causes heart disease Um, of course it doesn't cause heart disease the entire hysterical crusade against meat is primarily driven by the idea that hey if we just get people to eat a little less meat there'll be less price pressure on meat and if we can feed them grains instead which are mass-produced gmo very cheap stuff then you can hide inflation and that's what we see in the basket of goods. you repeatedly replace goods that are desirable, that are highly uh, going up in price, going up in price quickly with um, cheap industrial mass-produced goods, and then you make CPI look like it's 2%, 3%. Energy is another one. Yes. The last 50 years, you know, the same time when we've magically discovered that food, essential food that sustained humanity for uh, millions of years, meat, is harmful for us. We also magically discover that the fuels that we need to survive, the fuels on which the modern world has been built over the last 200 years, the fuels without which we would be struggling to survive every single winter suddenly we discover in the 1970s that they're going to cause uh, they're going to destroy earth and we're not sure how they're going to destroy earth in the 1970s they're going to destroy earth because we're going to run out and then there's going to be famines but then we realize oh no we're not going to run out but don't worry we can still maintain the conclusion that they're going to destroy the earth even if we use the exact opposite reasoning which is we're not going to run out there's actually just too many of them that we're going to burn so much that we're going to actually Change the temperature on this massive, massive twelve thousand kilometer diameter rock hurtling through space around a giant fireball, we are going to control the thermostat of it by using these fuels that are becoming coincidentally expensive because of inflation. And the only way to fix it is for you to live like your ancestors did in the 20th century on wind and solar power, because these things are not very price sensitive. So if you get rid of modern, you know, if you if you take away the most important things in people's lives, the most valuable goods, and convince them to live like a 12th century peasant, eating gruel and surviving on the wind and sun, there is no inflation. And that is, I think, the fiat end game. That is, that is where the magic money tree uh, game leads, you know, um, uh, uh, poverty for everybody else unlimited money for a small select group of people, essentially government and their cronies and their banks. And um, yeah, that's, that's the only alternative people have for Bitcoin so far. <laughs>
1: um, I think, thank you for that. It was a really powerful way of, of expressing it. I love your colorful um, analogies, the 12th century peasant in particular. I think we're, here in the UK, I think we all feel like we're turning into that, don't we, James?
2: Yeah, we do. It's like one big giant Ponzi scheme, isn't it? It's basically, I mean, that your summary there was absolutely perfect. I mean, I agree with so much of that stuff, but you managed to join the dots in a, in a way that a lot of people are still trying to connect the dots. So um, I, I agree with a lot of the sentiments, but I think a lot of people are a little bit blindsided by this. They cannot see what is in front of them. They haven't quite woken up to this all yet, but you've explained it in a really succinct way.
1: I mean, you said um, that Bitcoin's your sort of your your only alternative to this, to being to being used as a small person to become a a twelfth century peasant. Um, but I think in in another podcast or perhaps in your book, you've argued that if I've understood correctly, another way to game the system, as it were, is to borrow as much as you can afford and invest in those assets which are in the most limited supply. So I think you suggest you can game the system by investing in property in the nicest areas, for example. Is that, is that how you would, would express it?
0: Yes. Uh, well, the tricky part, though, is that, you know, in order to be able to play that game, you have to be rich to start with. Yeah. So it's, uh, and it's um, you know, so in, in the Bitcoin standard, I, I looked at Bitcoin from scratch. And in the fiat standard, I thought, why don't I just do the same thing for Fiat, because fiat ultimately is a digital currency as well you know the vast majority of fiat money is digital so i thought let's think of it as a software implementation and think about how it runs and then think about the implications of it and the conclusion that i arrived at is that the way to and this is something that was very different from how i thought because you know even before bitcoin for many years i'd always been um you know i was a gold person i was skeptical of the idea of taking on debt i thought debt was a terrible trap because they'll raise interest rates and then when interest rates rise you get liquidated and you lose your property and after writing the fiat standard and studying it, how, uh, studying how it functions, I think really the, the the winning move to be able to survive in the fiat standard, you know, is. Um is to be short fiat, is to make your liabilities denominated in fiat because the value of fiat declines over time. So you wanna borrow fiat today, to buy things today and pay it off over the future. And that just ends up being much cheaper. And that's why it's so much cheaper to buy your house um, with a mortgage than it is to just pay it with cash. That's why even people who have enough money to pay cash for their house, they still end up taking out a mortgage because it's much cheaper because you're paying, um, you know, inflation is actually in real terms higher than the rates uh, that they calculate. So you end up basically getting a part of that book, uh, a part of that um, cost of that house paid off but uh and and you realize this is basically how rich people function if, you, if you, um okay. in, in the fiat monetary system you just have assets you inherit assets you borrow against those assets and then um you know as, as michael Saylor explains it uh, you, the goal is to just keep running up your debt uh, yeah. liabilities until you die and then you pass on all of your assets and your debt to your children and then they keep accumulating more debt Because all along, what's happening is that you're accumulating hard assets, the hard assets will earn you cash, and you're paying off the cost of the assets back in uh, past money. So um, your revenue goes up with inflation, and your debt goes down. Now, I don't really recommend this as a good thing, because it means, you know, being sleepless at night, because missing a couple of paychecks means you lose your collateral, and you you could lose... um, a significant amount of money but i think this this helps us understand why the current monetary system is so devastating for people because you have to be um, a debt slave in order to not sink financially if you try to just you know if you decided to go with your grandma's wisdom i'm not going to borrow money i'm not going to spend money that yeah. i don't have i yeah. want to sleep at night i yeah. just want to save my money for the, my future you're just going to witness all of the money that you save lose value over time and you're never going to be yeah. able to keep up like a lot of people have tried to say you know i'm just going to save money to buy a house rather than borrowing to buy a house and it just it's it, it, it's it's a dream that just keeps getting more distant the more money yeah. you earn the the house of the price goes up further so Um, getting into debt is your only way of um, protecting yourself from the success and the from from the inflation of the fiat standard but that means essentially losing sleep and that's why and and that means becoming more and more short-termist more and more focused on you know i need to make the payment at the end of this month you don't have the kind of um, you know mental clarity and calmness and serenity to be able to think very long term in, in in uh in, in your business and in your personal life um and I think you know we're seeing this right now with Bitcoin and that a lot of people are borrowing in order to accumulate Bitcoin but of course it's extremely risky with Bitcoin because it's highly volatile so again I don't recommend it but you know the, the conclusion of the Bitcoin standard is Bitcoin is um the hardest money ever and uh, you should stack as much Bitcoin as you can the conclusion of the fiat standard is fiat is a um Dysfunctional opposite bizarre world money in which the point of the game is to collect as much negative balances of that money as is possible.
2: Yeah. If you look at the model now, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk going back because I know your book goes back much, much further, but going back to say 2008 to 2009 and the financial crash then and how basically. The scar, the wounds from the scar haven't healed since then. Do you think the the model we've got is still lacking any sustainability outside what you've talked about with Bitcoin, which allows people more autonomy and freedom in terms of their financial management? And you think governments are as a solution for this are moving towards central banking um, systems in terms of um, digital currency?
0: Yeah, I think. Um... I think the the central bank digital currency people are, many people are saying, well that's going to um, uh, compete with Bitcoin and it's going to take a, uh, bitcoin's market share away people are people think that you know governments can just introduce their own thing and it's just going to eat Bitcoin away but I think uh, it completely misses the point because people think what's unique and interesting and remarkable about Bitcoin is the fact that it's digital that's not the case the fiat money is digital as well you know we only have something like five percent of the money is printed into pieces of paper the vast majority is all digital so it's not very different from bitcoin in that regard what's interesting about bitcoin is not the digital part the interesting thing is that nobody can increase the supply and nobody can censor it nobody can take it away from you nobody can stop you from using it nobody can control it there's no central authority that's what's very interesting about bitcoin that's what drives the demand for bitcoin And that's what cannot be replicated by a central bank because the entire point of the central bank, the entire point of that cancer unleashed upon the world is precisely to inflate the money supply to finance government spending and precisely to allow government uh, control over society so that, you know, um, they can know who's spending what money and they can confiscate anybody's money and they can centralize money. So um, the CBDC just allows central banks to perform those functions more efficiently essentially emphasizing Bitcoin's value proposition rather than competing with it. So I think central bank digital currencies are the best advertisement for Bitcoin. And I think, um, you know, they make central banking much more efficient, which means much more destructive, which means it's going to make people uh, look into Bitcoin. And I think the other thing about it is, um, in, in in the fiat standard, I discuss how fiat money currently is created. It's currently created through credit creation. And this is the key thing, uh, the key point in the whole book. Like there is, people think of money as being printed as if the government is actually printing physical money, but that's a small fraction of the money. The real money creation happens when debt happens, which is insane in a sense, but it's also kind of um, good from a perspective that debt creation is self-correcting and that you can't just create infinite loans and hand them out. Like if, if if a central bank goes and gives every business that asks for, let's say every uh, car company, every car factory gets all the credit that it wants, that doesn't mean that the money supply can continue to expand because all of these car companies, some of them will get all the credit. Some of them will, uh, if they all get the credit, they're all going to produce cars. They're all going to go out of business. There's just going to be too much cars. So then they will all default. So that will cause the money supply to crash so this is how the fiat money inc uh, functions you know with bitcoin we have a very set algorithm that says how much the money supply increases with fiat it depends on how much credit is created and how much credit is destroyed in every single period and that's just very erratic and I mean, it's, it's not as good as Bitcoin, but it is better than the alternative with central bank digital currencies because central bank digital currencies, what they're gonna do is they're gonna get rid of the credit creation as being necessary for the creation of money and allow governments to just create money directly. The equivalent of printing what you see happening in places like Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Lebanon, where the government literally just ramps up the printing presses and floods the market with physical papers and then the value of the currency collapses that's what CBDCs allow, but in a much more efficient way, because no need to even get paper, which becomes, you know, at some point that becomes the limit. And then Zimbabwe ran into the problem and Venezuela ran into the problem. They run out of ink and they run out of paper to keep up with the demand for money. CBDCs are going to get rid of that problem. It's all going to be digital entries. And so... Your, I mean, I think the dangerous thing here is that we're talking about essentially the destruction of the banking industry as we know it, and its replacement with effectively the Soviet model for banking, the people's bank, one central bank, and you have your account directly with the central bank. So everybody's going to have a Bank of England app on their phone that has all of your money, and it's fully under the control of the Bank of England and then of course you know the the, the possibilities there and then I'm sure I know James you're uh you've been very vocal on uh uh on covid I think that's a little bit of a a a a, a dress rehearsal for the kind of things that will come and that will be facilitated by this by um CBDCs so lockdowns are going to be much much more efficient when your money stops working when you leave your house like that's it. You, you know, your money can't work. Your car can't work. You can't fill up with gas. Well, there's not going to be gas. You're going to be running in a small little golf cart. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it's much easier to control you when your money's controlled. And then, and then you know, when uh, when it's linked to your social media and your crime thing. So, if when you say something that's unacceptable, you well, get your money frozen for a week. Trouble, then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you're in trouble, but then there is an answer. And that's Bitcoin.
2: Exactly. I mean, that's and then, the... It moves the foot to some form of social credit control, whereby the only way you can intrinsically link that properly is by having some form of financial control. And so, you know, if it, you end up going into the debate and goes around from the financial model as a conduit to social control, what the terms and conditions set by the government are for effectively access of finance. Exactly. And
0: that's just, you know, it's almost like making it making breathing dependent on obedience to your government. Like you can't survive without money. Without money in a modern society, you die. Like if, if you don't have money, if your money doesn't work, and you're not allowed to use money, you literally starve and die. So it's really like choking somebody and telling them you're only allowed to breathe if you are completely obedient to me and it's just it, 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 it it's 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 the wet dream for all of these sick totalitarians in government who uh, had a who had a blast over the last last couple of years cbdc's are, are their fantasy i think and it's uh it's it, it's very concerning how quickly we're moving in uh the idea in, into the idea of normalizing this and how we're seeing the same kind of you know the same kind of zombies in the mainstream the same kind of people that um that you know in in january 2020 if you'd asked them um the worst pandemic in the world what would you do about it they would have never said let's lock everybody at home and then in march because their stupid tv told them that that's a good idea they all suddenly had all these incredibly complicated and sophisticated scientific uh, explanations for why yes we should lock the entire planet at home in order to fight the virus because that's uh what the tv said so you see the same kind of thing happening with central banks and with the normalization of this idea and I think the other aspect that's uh, linked to it is we're going to start getting more and more of these uh, weather and climate-related li- uh, restrictions. You know, that's too hot, it's too cold, that's because of global warming, so you can't drive your car, so you can't do this. And that's going to be very, very handy with inflation. So if you get to tell people to stay home because there's a virus or because there's a climate change or because the big, bad, evil CO2 is going to come and kill us all, well, then they stay home. They don't consume fuel. They don't travel. They don't uh, spend money. You've reduced the pressure on inflation. Again, you know, 12th century peasants in tiny little bug pods is excellent inflation fighting policy. <laughs> it's much more likely for the central bank policy than you know um, saying no to the banks. What are you going to do? Like say no to your bank, uh, to the bankers that basically put you in your job, or tell the peasants to starve obviously tell the peasants to starve.
1: Yeah, quite. Um, do you see CBDCs as an inevitability? I mean, of course, one of the, the main reasons James and I are exploring Bitcoin is as a tool of resistance to that. Uh, but I'm interested in whether you think, how much hope do you think there is of resisting that development? And and what do you think the time frame is for you know, near wholesale introduction of, of these systems, whether in the West or otherwise?
0: I honestly don't know. I mean, it's uh, the, 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 this is the policies of governments and um, I'm not, I don't work for any government and I'm, uh, I don't have any central banker friends to fill me in with any kind of special information. Uh, pretty much, if you're a central banker, then uh, you're not going to be friends with me. And mm. that's... Uh, <laughs> a small price that i'm willing to pay or well, a small bonus that i'm willing to accept <laughs> but uh no i don't have any special insight on how this gets implemented or whether it gets implemented there was one positive thing that happened you know there was a um, there was an appointee by uh biden that was going to introduce something similar um i forget i think I forget the exact office but she came in with some very very uh, really straight out of uh, the Soviet Union ideas about how to manage the monetary system. And then she did not get confirmed. And I think right. perhaps... Um, you know one the, the main obstacle here is the banking industry the banking industry is they're not uh, peasants like us they have power they have influence they have money and they're not going to go silently into the night if the central okay. banks just come and say yep you know we're going to shut you all down and we're just going to yeah. bank people directly so um you know uh, if you don't like the current banking kleptocracy you may need to cheer for it because oh, it that's, be- that's
2: that's the uh, irony isn't it we might end up going hand in hand and campaigning with, with, with banks to, to protect aspects of the existing model uh, against government control.
0: Yeah, because, you know, as as bad as things are, they're not as bad as having a Goss bank, you know, the Soviet people's bank with one central bank and um, uh, just endless inflation and government control over all money. money. That, that is even worse. Um, but I mean, yeah, we don't have to go hand in hand with the banks. They can take care of that and you can just stack uh, Bitcoin. That's the kind of... Uh, you know 4d chess move which is all of this stuff you know they're just going to make more dollars more euros more pounds whether it's going to be digital currencies or it's just going to be the same classical uh format ultimately what it all comes down to is 20 years from now we're only going to have something like uh eight percent more bitcoin than what we have right now that's it and it's very well uh, known whereas you know we're gonna have probably in 10 years from now it's probably gonna be at least double as many british pounds and u.s dollars and uh, uh euros and so on so you know supply and demand um math can't be cheated there's just going to be a lot more of everything than Bitcoin we're going to make more houses we're going to make more pounds we're going to make more bonds all of those governments are going to print more there's going to be a lot more inflation and the one winning move in the long term will continue to be to bet on the one horse that can't be inflated so it's you know the and and the beautiful thing about it is it 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 frees you from this idea of needing to be an activist about it in the sense that Bitcoin is isn't a campaign where we need to go around and raise awareness and tell people and explain to them, you know, if you do this, if you sacrifice and if you give up on one, two, three, and if you donate, and if you join the marches and if you write a petition, then one day we'll have all of that. We don't need any of that stuff for Bitcoin. (laughs) Bitcoin has its own built in marketing um, outreach department, which is what we call number go up technology. People see the price go up, they wanna get in. People get in because they're curious about making money. People get in because they're greedy and that's all that Bitcoin needs Bitcoin doesn't need people to be uh, selfless B- Bitcoin doesn't need people to want to fix the world it just needs you to be greedy so that you buy Bitcoin so that the price goes up and as long as that happens as long as more people keep coming in as long as the supply continues to be fixed as it is it's 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 inevitable it's just um the price is going to go up the people who are inside are going to benefit the people who are outside can keep coming in and again. Uh you know, ultimately what differentiates this from a, a, a Ponzi scheme from or from um national currencies is that nobody in the Bitcoin system can make more Bitcoin. If somebody maintained if somebody had the ability of one day making more Bitcoin, then they could basically rug pull everybody who comes in. You know, we could have uh let's say a trillion dollars worth of value in Bitcoin, and then if I can make another 20 million bitcoins, I can just basically take half of all of that value that's stored there. But as long as nobody can do that, then more and more people can come in and there's no possibility of it turning into a Ponzi because nobody can make more of those. And so people who come in benefit and then that leads to more and more people wanting to come in. And the, uh, the, the other kind of nice thing about it is that it naturally draws people who are enemies of the state into it because you know if you if you were so i know a lot of people who are into who are not into money not interested in economics and have um, you know would have very little curiosity about bitcoin normally But because they're interested in, say, COVID and their uh, views on COVID are uh, crazy, they've been, um, you know, some of them have had banking problems. Some of them have had um, social media problems. So they are interested in alternatives. They want to get banked. So people who are dissidents, people who are opposition, are naturally going to gravitate toward Bitcoin. And I think over time, that's going to result in... um, uh, uh, them <laughs> benefiting financially and giving them more and more power and tools to yeah. spread their ideas.
1: Um, and can I ask, so I'm conscious we haven't got much time left, about the role of Bitcoin in the developing world. It's interesting. I think you may correct me on this, but I think that somewhere like Nigeria has the highest number of people who are actually invested in Bitcoin in a very, very small way. People, Many people have just a tiny stake of it what is your reflection on that? Um, it's, it looks to be a tool potentially of empowerment for people in the poorest countries where the state is most likely to be irresponsible in the way they're handling currencies.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my own personal experience is that I used live in lebanon and uh, lebanon had hyperinflation and um if i had not discovered bitcoin if i was not using bitcoin i would have been financially ruined and it's no exaggeration um you know the money in your national currency or your money in the bank or your uh, dollars in the bank effectively got devalued by something in the range of 95%. Yeah. And then you had a massive destruction of the entire economy. So even if you you know your savings were wiped out and your business was likely wiped out. So pretty much everybody suffered badly from that except uh, if you were in a lot of debt. If you were in a lot of debt you got a 95% discount on your debt repayment in in real terms. Um but that's that that's effectively what has happened and Bitcoin was the way that I managed to save my family's savings it's the way that I managed to get my money out of the country when I left so yeah it's definitely being used a lot of people in Venezuela have also uh, done similar things um and it's I think uh most likely you know it's going to be spreading more and more in places where people have. Um, uh, problems with their currency because they have to look at alternatives. They, they don't have the luxury of thinking of it as just an investment. They have to think, you know, when your money is de- depreciating at 20% a month, you are much more urgent in the way that you're looking for alternatives. So I'm, I'm hopeful in that regard. Um, I, and I think it's going to be it's it's going to be big and I think the other thing that's going to be massive in the developing world is stable coins I was very skeptical of staple coins for a very long time and I thought they would fall apart but these are essentially currencies that work like Bitcoin but their value is pegged to the US dollars and it's 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 growing enormously because um having a u.s dollar having access to the us dollar is enormously important for people all over the world i think bitcoin is better but i think you know uh, given bitcoin's volatility and given uh, the familiarity of the dollar i think we're going to witness an enormous growth in people all over the world using um stable coins rather than using their national currency and it's effectively going to be a big boon for the us dollar and uh, a big problem for uh, other world for the rest of the world's currencies
2: See, I agree with the point you touched on going back about. I think this has become like a, another part of an ideological battle between sort of those who want to be looked after by government, maybe misplaced sort of authoritarianism versus forms of liberalism. This is but then that the danger of that is we we risk possibly of creating a two-tier society based on finance, don't we, with this?
0: yeah that's kind of uh, the conclusion that I arrive at uh, in the fiat system that we're headed towards a kind of financial apartheid system where there's, um, there's several castes in society there's the fiat uh, you know the, the fiat upper class the fiat beneficiaries the, the, the what I like to call fiat privilege You know, incidentally we're always being lectured about all kinds of different privilege the one privilege they'll never lecture you about is the privilege of being able to get free money from the central bank that's something that um, the media doesn't uh, do a very good job of uh, beating people over with. But yeah, there's going to be fiat privilege. You know, if you're one of the people that doesn't need to work, that just gets money from the central bank at low interest rates, uh, that's a part of society. Then there's, you know, the fiat peasants that are um, struggling to keep up with the their money, they value, have no possibility of saving and are constantly degrading their quality of life. Um, in order to try and keep up and are constantly being gaslit into believing that no no it's actually good for you that you eat uh, um, uh, gruel and that you stay in the cold in the winter it's, it's how you're doing your part to save earth and it's and i, and I think what's really pernicious about it is this idea that you know we're so rich and we're so educated and we're so enlightened that we are capable of recognizing that we should be eating slave gruel and freezing in the winter in order to save the planet people have present present this as if it's some kind of virtue as if it's some kind of charity that we're doing, but no, you're just poor. Uh, stop glamorizing it. You're you're being robbed by central banks. That's it.
2: <laughs> it's the hoodwink of, of forms of virtue totalitarianism, isn't it? I mean, you can see it in so many yeah. all people want to be seen to be doing good, but actually, it's counterproductive for their own means means in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And then there's the third cast, which is uh, Bitcoiners, which are people who have
0: separated from that, who have the ability to save for the future, have the ability to maintain savings, and who don't rely on the government in order to maintain their wealth. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're, we're already seeing the contours of this world, you know, small minority of fiat, um, uh, privileged, a small minority of Bitcoiners, and a growing mass of poor peasants unfortunately you know the middle class all over the world and like you know with with economic growth in poor countries providing cheap plastic goods that are improving the standards of living for people in poor countries people in rich countries are having their standards of living decline we're witnessing perhaps something like just a global mass of people that are going to be living um you know, you can't afford a house, you can't afford fuel, you can't afford good food, but you've got a lot of plastic toys and distractions and a lot of government propaganda to tell you that this is good for you.
2: But it's like they opened modern day version of opium for the masses, isn't it? Furlough was an example of that. Possibly universal basic income might be coming down the tracks. There's another version of that. Plus exactly. the bread and circuses around the auspices of luxury convenience to stay at home.
0: Yeah and like the, the 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 constant uh churn of current things of that need to capture your mind and you, keep you glued yep. to the TV and uh, uh angry at your neighbor and going around and uh, being essentially the the, the local enforcement uh, arm of your global <laughs> fiat propaganda <laughs> machine
1: that feels like a, a good time to, to finish up. James, is there anything else you wanted to, to come in on? I think we covered a lot of ground.
2: We have. That's been an excellent chat. So thank you for your time. It's food for thought. And I think we share a lot of your sentiments. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure chatting to you guys. I hope we do it
1: again. Thank you very much for coming. Bye.
0: You.
2: Take care.